All right. New year, new mission. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 2 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. So Season 2, pretty exciting that I lasted this long. And so this will be Episode 1 of Season 2. I thought maybe that would sound a little more logical than trying to remember what was the number of the last episode from that dreaded year 2020. So here we are, new year, new mission, like I said. And what we're going to be doing for the first few weeks of 2020 is talking about my book that's coming out in February entitled Love, Death. The last episode in December, I read from chapter one, which was introducing Alexei Bukharin as a 15-year-old and his cousin, Nikolai Bukharin, and detailing how they were recruited to work on a mission when they got a bit older for this cabal inside the Soviet Union called the Red Circle. Now, the Red Circle doesn't exist, or at least if there was one, I didn't know about it. It's a figment of my imagination. And I'm not going to delve too much into it in this book. You'll get little hints about it. I really talked more about it and expanded on it in last November's NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month project, which won't be out for a few years because I'm not one of those people who writes in November, edits in December, and publishes in January. I have to put my work aside for several months and then come back to it with a fresh eye. But I thought today we'd start off by talking about one of the themes in this book, Love, Death, and it's about a chemical plant in the middle of East Berlin that a portion of it is going to be turned over to producing a chemical called Novichok. Now, you've heard of that. It's been in the news the last several years. Three years ago, a Soviet defector and his daughter were poisoned with it by two agents from the GRU, the, so the Russian military intelligence group. They survived, remarkably so, and then most recently, within the last few months, the leader of the opposition in Russia was poisoned by having, they believe, Novichok placed in a cup of tea he was drinking. So Novichok is not recent. Novichok was developed in the early 1970s by a group of Soviet scientists who recognized after making it that they had created one of the most deadly compounds on Earth. And the Soviet Union maintained a stockpile of this chemical until the 
after the breakup of the Soviet Union, when they were more inclined to be part of the Convention on Chemical Weapons and part of the organization that seeks to eradicate chemical weapons. Chemical weapons were outlawed by most civilized countries after World War I. There are some conventions, actually, the United States, for some odd reason, hasn't signed on to. But the use of chemical weapons during World War I was of such a horrific nature that most governments realized that this was something that should never be used again. And, and that they would, wouldn't even use it as a deterrent. The stockpiles from most countries were destroyed. And they signed on to the convention saying that they would never develop or use chemical weapons again. So the Russians, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, did destroy their stockpile. But then what they did was look at the formula and develop a new version of Novichok, one that was less dangerous to the people handling it, but more deadly. What they essentially were able to do was to, to create two compounds that, when separate, were inert or not deadly. But if you put them together, they created Novichok. And it meant that you could mix those two compounds almost where you were going to release that weapon. Although you did need some protective gear, it wasn't as dangerous to the people doing the mixing as it had been in the past. There were rumors that many people had died in accidents where containment was breached with Novichok, and it really only takes a small amount to do a great deal of damage. So Novichok is still around. It was around in the 1980s, which is when this new book is, is, falls in the timeline. And I thought a, this chemical weapons plant disguised in the middle of an agricultural pesticides plant would be an interesting topic to write about. And I also like this book. I, I may have said it before. This is more an Alexei-centric book than many of the others. My and Alexei are equal partners in my writing, but I write principally from her point of view, and they're her stories. And so people had asked for, and I, of course, when, when you have people who read your books and call themselves your fans, you want to please them. So when several people said, we, you know, we'd really like to see an Alexei-centric story, this, this book came up. Now, Mai is in this book, but she's certainly not the main character throughout the book. She's a key character kind of in the middle section because... I couldn't write an Alexei book with Mai at, at, at the, during this period and not have Mai in it. If I had written something from the early 1970s, possibly, you know, it could have been all Alexei. 
But anyway, they learn about this new Novichok formula and where it's going to be produced. And they come up with a rather intricate way to take care of that situation. And we also have an interaction with the character I introduced in chapter one, Alexei's cousin, Nikolai Bukharin, who could pass for Alexei's twin. And the interesting aspect of this is Mai has never met him and doesn't even know about him. But there's also another thread through this, which involves a man who was caught in East Germany in 1961 when the barbed wire went up to mark where the Berlin Wall would eventually be. And so this is partly his story too. And the second chapter gives a little glimpse into the beginning of the Berlin Wall. Now, I barely remember the Berlin Wall going up. That was in 1961, August of 1961, and I was very young, let's just say. <laughs> but I do remember its aftermath quite distinctly, including listening to the speech that President Kennedy gave at the Berlin Wall, where he said the famous words, Ich bin ein Berliner. And even though his German grammar wasn't quite right, and apparently he said he was a donut or some such, the Berliners got what he meant. The East Berliners and the West Berliners got what he meant, that America and the West stood with them in opposition to this artificial barrier between people. What really inspired this chapter was there's a very famous photograph of an East German soldier, and I believe there's video of it. I think you can Google it and find it, of him leaping over the barbed wire shortly after it was put up to go to the West. And then his other, his fellow East German soldiers couldn't shoot him. They had orders to shoot anyone who tried to cross and they couldn't shoot him. I've always found that a tremendously powerful and evocative image. And whereas I didn't work that into the story, I couldn't quite do it without making it look like it was forced in or pushed in. That image was in the back of my mind, particularly for this, this one character that I'm going to read about in chapter two, in his overwhelming desire to get back to the, the western sector of Berlin, where his family is. All right, so we'll go ahead and get started with the reading, and then we might chat a little more about inspiration or what's coming next. And if there's time, we might do another chapter. That would kind of wrap up part one of this book. So we'll go ahead and start reading chapter two, Barbed Wire. Russian Sector, East Berlin, August, 1961. 
He'd come to the barbed wire every day for five days and stood at a spot close to his mother's flat. If his wife came to look for him, she'd come here. They'd discuss these things, these contingencies, as he'd called them, before his visit. They'd heard the rumors, after all. The Soviets were about to cut East Berlin off from the American sector. His mother hadn't been well most of her life because of the war. She had a nervous disposition, said the doctors. A loud noise would send her into a closet to cower in the darkness. Once, when he was a teenager, he and his mother strolled in a park. A man in a military uniform walked toward them, strolling to a young woman on his arm. But the mother had pissed herself in public. Often she'd had crises, such as this most recent one, this particular week when global politics rose to staggering heights in Berlin. He didn't want to blame her, but her timing was rotten. She must have read accusation in his eyes. She kept apologizing to him. On the day the soldiers rolled out the barbed wire, the day military vehicles had blocked streets, and the day Soviet tanks and soldiers appeared in greater numbers, he'd sat in his mother's flat and listened to sporadic gunfire. Both of them remembered the spring of 1945, the last time the Soviet army overran Berlin. Then mother and son huddled behind piles of rubble and hoped no bomb or Russian soldier would find them. Identifying who to fear was easy. This hot day in 1961, the tanks had no markings. The soldiers inside them wore black uniforms with no insignia, but they were Russians, make no mistake. Though it was against the doctor's orders, the night before he'd let his mother drink enough schnapps to put herself into a stupor while he sat and listened and waited for the jackboots on the stairs. The next morning, he'd told his hungover mother he had to try to get back to his wife and children. She'd wept in that way mothers did to imbue guilt in their grown children, but he had to try. At an impromptu checkpoint manned by East German and the black-clad Soviet soldiers, he'd shown his papers and identification, explained about his family, that he was the only breadwinner, that his children were two and four. An East German soldier translated for the black-clad soldier, whose overbearing attitude and demanding presence labeled him an officer. Comrade, the officer said, you should have had the foresight to bring your wife and children with you so the socialist state could support them. Now they will suffer under capitalism because of you. You are an East German now, comrade. Go back, or... The officer nodded toward a section of barbed wire. Bodies of people shot trying to escape were tangled among the lines of wire and were already bloating in the August sun. That smell also took him back to the spring of 1945. 
he realized that was what he had listened to yesterday, people dying. But that was all the effect it had on him. He'd seen things more grotesque in the death throes of the Reich. He took his papers back and returned to his mother's flat. He tried to call his wife, but phone lines in the Russian sector had been cut. Thus began his ritual of going to the spot he and his wife had picked. Four days, and she didn't come. She was there on the 5th. He saw her among a crowd of Berliners from the sector the Americans controlled. Later, when this all became official, he would be an East Berliner and she a West Berliner. She stood behind American barbed wire, hastily thrown up as some sort of response to the Soviets' actions. A swath of unoccupied ground stretched between the two barriers, but he saw her. She had the two-year-old balanced on a hip and held the four-year-old's hand. His son pointed to him and waved. Hiding his action with his body, he waved back. He and his wife locked eyes, and he tried to communicate things he should have said, that he loved her, that he would find a way to return to her, that there would never be anyone else. So many things needing to be said. Sunlight shone off the tears on her cheeks, but he couldn't cry. That would signal disloyalty. But he was disloyal. He didn't want to be here. But he also wanted to live. Even if he managed to scramble through the barbed wire tangle unscathed and dashed across the no-man's land, his family would see the East German soldiers gun him down. He hoped? No. He prayed, even though that wasn't allowed here. She would understand and forgive his cowardice, that she would find a way to be happy without him, even though he couldn't be without her. She nodded to him, a single, forceful dip of her chin, and turned away. He stood rooted to the spot until he could no longer see her. Only then did he walk away. Tomorrow he would report to his new job, the German Democratic Republic's newest industrial facility sanitation engineer, a janitor, and he would find a way. Okay, that's chapter two of Love Death, which comes out on February 14th of this year, 2021. And I'm calling it a love story, but not what you're expecting. Because it's more about brotherly love between Alexei and his cousin, Nikolai. You can pre-order Love Death from my Amazon author page, which is amazon.com slash author slash Phyllis Duncan. P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-D-U-N-C-A-N, all smashed together. No caps or anything like that, or spaces. I'm putting together probably some sort of live event on 
launch day, which I believe is a Sunday. I believe the 14th is a Sunday. And I know it competes with Valentine's Day, but it'll be recorded and it'll be available later. But in the meantime, if you want to see a little video about the book that I put together, I'm not terribly talented in that area, but I used a program called Lumen 5, and I put together, it's about a one minute long video, teaser, book teaser, they call it, about Love Death. And you can find that on my Facebook author page, which is www.facebook.com slash U-N-S-P-Y-W-R-I-T-E-R. So facebook.com slash unspywriter stands for U-N-spywriter. Have a little look at that. Comment on it. Tell me what you think about it. I think I found some pretty accurate images and some really great music to go with it. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. Some of the book trailers that I've done have been kind of mediocre. I'm not a very visual person, so something that appeals to me may actually be pretty boring. But a couple of people looked at this before I posted it on my author page and really liked it. I'll eventually put it on my website and on my Amazon author page as well. But if you want to have a look at it and leave me some feedback, you can go to my Facebook author page. It's a pinned post at the top of the page and you know, give it a look. All right, so we may have time to read a second chapter, which would probably be a good idea because then it wraps up part one of Love Death, which was kind of an introductory part. You know, I introduced Alexei and his cousin and then this character who hasn't been named yet, who's caught in East Germany when the barbed wire goes up. And so now we're going to move a few years down the road. In fact, about 15 years down the road from 1961. And we're going to talk about another interesting part of German history. And that's that features in here. And that's the Bader Meinhof gang or the Red Army Faction, as some called it. This was a leftist group of students and intellectuals, some journalists. In fact, Ulrich Meinhof, who was one of the founders, was a, a former journalist. Bader was simply a thug, a gangster sort, and he and somehow he and Meinhof, there's a fascinating movie about that whole relationship. And of course, the name is escaping me right now. If I can find it, it's somewhere in my notes. If I can find it, I'll talk about it in another podcast. But when you were a child of the 60s and 70s, the demonstrations in Europe were fascinating to, to me as I studied not only Russian history, but Marxist-Leninist theory. And they like to call themselves leftists or Marxists, but they were more Leninists. I mean, Lenin is the one who brought the violence 
into Marxism. It was a fascinating concept. I mean, here was Germany barely 20 to 30 years past a right-wing debacle in their country, and we're now facing terrorism from the left. And the Badr-Meinhof gang really was kind of minor. They did robberies. They hadn't done much damage until, for some reason, they decided to take over a government building and when they and hold hostages to try and force the German government to their demands. And in the process, they killed several hostages who were innocents. You know, they, they were in a government office, but they happened to be taken hostage. And that really destroyed any support that the middle class in Germany might have given the Red Army faction because they were proposing some reforms in West Germany that a lot of people thought were positive. But this violence really turned most people off their message. The four key people that formed the leadership of the Bader-Meinhof gang, Ulrich Meinhof, Andreas Bader, his girlfriend, and then I can't remember the name of the fourth person, they were arrested and they were put on trial. And in this particular part of Germany, the court the courthouse was right was part of the system where they had them in jail. And they were all under a suicide watch. But in May of 1976, in the middle of the trial, Ulrike Meinhof manages to kill herself. Now, this is the conclusion that the police reached, was that she had killed herself. The rumor for years was that a guard had killed her. Even the KGB had killed her to silence her, which is what I picked up on, as you'll see in a minute. And the others were eventually found guilty, sent to jail, and the Badr-Meinhof gang, Red Army Faction, kind of faded from history. But it's a very fascinating political period in Germany at the time. And that's, this was a very popular, almost national movement that ultimately failed because of resorting to violence. So let's read this chapter. It's not terribly long, but we're only at about a half an hour right now. So I think we have time to do it. You'll get another little glimpse into Alexei and his cousin Nikolai. Chapter 3. Controlled Violence. West Berlin, Federal Republic of Germany, May 1976. United Nations spy Alexei Bukharin leaned against a building and watched German youth play at revolution. The mob teamed around a prison, a great deal of red among the crowd, scarves, hats, shirts, signs, appropriate, since they all claimed to be members or supporters of the Red Army faction. The West German Intelligence Service called it that, Grote Army Faktion, but the media had tagged it the Bader-Meinhof gang, 
That was how the public referred to the pack of criminals created five years before by disillusioned leftist journalist Ulrike Meinhof and petty thief Andreas Bader. With Meinhof's planning and Bader's criminal contacts, Red Army faction cells appeared all over West Germany, but their acts of revolution only forced people to live in fear. Alexei had no doubt the East German Stasi and the KGB had supported Meinhof and Bader, but the two had overstepped themselves. The capture of a government building and the killing of two hostages had brought the ringleaders to trial here at the courthouse, attached to a prison. Supporters had flooded the streets to chant revolutionary slogans they knew Meinhof and Bader could hear from inside. Alexei's partner, Nelson, moved among the crowd in a jaunty red beret, shouting those slogans and holding a clenched fist high while he listened for anyone fomenting violence and kept an eye out for known KGB agents. Alexei preferred to distance himself, to take in the big picture. He could explain to these would-be Marxists what living in a communist state was like, having lived in one for his first 21 years. But he understood their motivation. This generation of West Germans toyed with communism because of their Nazi parents and grandparents. The youth detested the regimes following World War II because they read the taint of Nazism on them all. Alexei could admire that because Nazis had killed his father and two of his siblings. To his dismay, however, the Bader-Meinhof gang had turned to uncontrolled violence instead of socialist philosophy. Alexei preferred the use of controlled violence. Yet most civilized people would consider him a violent man, and he could be. His violence, however, served justice. His violence wasn't the baseless terror the Bader-Meinhof gang preferred, violence without purpose. That's what he told himself. His narrowed eyes swept over the scene. His ears brought him the shouts and jeers, the singing of proletariat songs, some of them echoing in his memories of Komsomol and young communists. But this wasn't a day for nostalgia. Across the street and a block away, a man watched Alexei, had watched him, since he'd taken his observation spot. The man was tall, had sandy blonde hair beneath a fedora tipped low over his eyes. The man smoked, holding the cigarette between his thumb and forefinger so that his palm hid it. Maybe it was a day for nostalgia after all. Every time Alexei worked Eastern Europe, he risked encountering the KGB. He had been marked to serve the party, but had defected, putting himself on a list of criminals for that. Cover identities and aliases protected him most of the time, but in West Germany he hadn't bothered with that protocol. Having been KGB himself, he knew how they worked. They'd be patient and wait for the right moment for him to let his guard down even if that took years. He wouldn't let his guard down because he'd recently added another heinous crime to his list. He'd had his son removed from the Soviet Union, 
his son for whom the party also had specific plans. Alexei unbuttoned his overcoat to have easier access to his gun, checked for traffic, and crossed the street. The KGB man showed no surprise to see the subject of his scrutiny approaching. He took a final long drag on his cigarette and flicked it away, exhaling slowly as he and Alexei looked into each other's eyes, eyes the same color blue, like indigo when things were normal and glacier ice when angered. The sons of twins, they had always been mistaken for brothers. When Alexei reached him, the man pushed off the wall he'd leaned against and walked the last few steps to meet Alexei. The two men embraced and kissed three times, alternately on each other's cheeks. Alexei Nikolaevich, the man greeted. He smiled and added, Alyosha. Alexei replied, Nikolai Alexeyevich, Kolya. The West does well by you. Kolya said, his English good. Expensive suit, Italian shoes. I am impressed. The curl of his lip showed he wasn't. Alexei replied, A suit from gum? Shoes from gum. I am not impressed. Have they sent you to bring me in? Of course not. I am here to observe, shall we say. However, a border agent cued us when you came into the country. He gave his cousin a pointed look. You used your real name. Every time you do that, you wave a red cape at the bull that is the KGB. I consider it rubbing their noses in their own shit, Alexei smiled and added. It's a good name. I kept it for a reason. Da, da, to rub noses in shit. You tempt death, which has an effect on me. I can take care of myself, Kolya. No need for you to fulfill your part of the bargain today. When you do, if you do need that, I'll live up to my obligation. Only please, I beg you, let it be for something of significance. Certainly not a naive want-to-be revolutionary. Koya's eyes had shifted from being hard and unyielding to affection. Your mother is well, Koya said. I was in Kiev a few weeks ago and went to see her. Well, thank you for telling me, but she and I keep in touch. Not often enough for her, though. Well, you know how mothers can be. And... Piotr, how is his adjustment? Ongoing. In case I happen to run into you, I have something from him. I am reaching into my inside front pocket for two envelopes. Ah, Kolya said, smiling. That is why you use your real name. You needed a messenger boy. You don't have to take them. Idiot, I am making a joke. Give them here. Kolya watched Alexei's movements with intent. Alexei held the white envelopes toward him. One is for my mother, from Pyotr. The other for his maternal grandparents. Oh, the Krasnovskis, yes. They remain vocal in their outrage at Pyotr's kidnapping. He smiled at his cousin and took the envelopes. 
and I am putting them in the inside front pocket of my simple proletariat gum suit. Alexei's lips tipped upward in a brief smile. I will see they are delivered, the one for your mother with discretion, Kolya said. Spasiba, Alexei murmured. Shouts from the crowd swelled in volume, and both men looked toward the crowd. Ah, Kolya said, smiling. The sound of revolution is in the air. They are children playing a game. Lenin, Trotsky, our grandfather, our great-uncles. They were the true revolutionaries who liberated the Russian people from Tsarist oppression. Careful, Alyosha, defector to the West. You sound like a Marxist. I've never found much wanting with Marxism, only the party's interpretation of it. Koya's eyes narrowed as he studied the crowd. In case you did not know, we run Ulrich in Meinhof to stir dissatisfaction with the FRG. I suspected. I trust that tidbit of intelligence will not appear in your report of this encounter? And yet you told me. Another smile from Kolya. Merely making conversation and you self-important ass. I said you are not the reason I am here. The two men looked at each other. With a shrug, Kolya said, Ulrike is not the most stable of people. She might get too talkative. I don't need to know more than that. Alexei said, or I might feel compelled to include your tidbit of intelligence in my report. Kolya laughed and took his cigarette packet from his coat pocket. He tapped the packet until several cigarettes rose higher than the others. He held the packet toward his cousin. Alexei shook his head. Kolya took one and placed it between his lips. Alexei produced a lighter. A long inhale, and as he exhaled smoke, Kolya said, Re Remember that summer when your mother caught us smoking behind one of the haystacks? She was more worried we'd set the hay on fire than us filling our lungs with tar, Alexei replied. Kolya smiled at the memory, followed by abrupt somberness. My official report will indicate I failed to locate you. And you will be anonymous in mine. Kolya looked at Alexei, his expression morphing from neutrality to something else. Some emotion Alexei wouldn't show. It is good to see you, Alyosha. It has been far too long. But that was the choice we made, Kolya said. A choice made for us, Alexei replied. Nikolai Alexeyevich nodded and took another drag on his cigarette, his eyes becoming steel again. Have a good stay in Germany, comrade. Watch your back, Kolya said. He pulled his fedora lower over his eyes and walked away. A few paces between them and Alexei called to him. Buy a new hat at the gum, will you? Kolya's laugh was low, but amused. He touched the brim of his hat and walked toward the prison. 
Okay, we'll stop that there. There's a little bit more to that chapter, but why don't I let you read that when you buy the book? <laughs> so I hope everyone had a good New Year. I hope you stayed home. My state, my area, unfortunately, is in a high contagion interval right now. Uh, we've had more infections and more deaths in the last month than we've had practically the whole nine months we've been We've been under restrictions, and it's very disheartening. We only have a limited number of vaccines here in my area, and they are all going to frontline healthcare providers, which I have no problem with because my daughter is one of them. But I'm looking forward to a time after I can get the vaccine where I don't feel shut up in my house or harboring fear of leaving my house. I've never wanted to be that kind of person, and I'm, I'm somewhat developing into that. But that's neither here nor there. The, those are my issues to deal with and perhaps therapy in the future again. So stay safe, please. I want you to be around to read this new book. Stay socially distant. Most of all, wear your mask. And remember, if you do have to go out, keep an eye out for spies. This has been a production of Unexpected Paths Radio. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.